today's scripture comes from John 10, 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the word of the Lord. I you to take out a copy of God's Word if you haven't already. We are in John chapter 10 this morning. We are continuing our series through the various I am statements of Jesus. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John, gives seven I am statements where he is declaring who he is in a very metaphorical and powerful way. And so we are walking through each of these. Uh, feels, it feels really odd to not have, uh, you know, so many little kids in here. I feel like we have a lot of our little ones who are sick, so be in prayer for a lot of the families. I know our family, for sure, John and Jack are at home, and they're, they're not feeling their best. Jude, you know, he, he just, he wasn't sick, so he's here with me, you know. So Jude, man, you make sure you keep a good eye on Patrick there, and uh, make sure he doesn't get out of line, all right? Um, but uh, listen, I'm so thankful for, for our church. I'm so thankful for all the various ways that we see the Lord move. We get into routines, and again, I am Mr. Routine and Rhythm when it comes to church. I think it forms and shapes our hearts in particular ways. But one of the pitfalls of that is that it's easy to miss what the Lord's doing right in front of us because we just expect it. I mean, even small things like Zach and Julia, the way that they have stepped up in uh, the area of music and hospitality, we're really thankful for them. And, and everyone who served on stage this morning, Garrett, uh, Thorne, Avery's brother, for, for serving with us this morning on piano, and Meg Youngblood in the back back there, so thankful that she stepped up to serve, and then we have a host of people serving in the nursery this morning. Listen, take, take a moment today and just, just thank them, because they are serving the Lord, and it is a work of the Spirit in their hearts that they are serving us, so we are really thankful. Um, in this series, what we're trying to do is simply look at Jesus and listen to Jesus, and then reflect on what we see and what we hear. In this series, we are trying to ground ourselves in the reality of Jesus. We've, most of us have grown up in church or around church at least, and we've heard a whole lot about Jesus. We've probably heard a whole lot of true things about Jesus, but then we've also probably had a lot of things that are not so true that has been sprinkled in. And so from time to time, it's actually a good idea to take a step back, reevaluate, is the Jesus that I'm worshiping, is the Jesus that I believe in, the Jesus that we meet in the pages of Scripture? And we're doing that by looking at his I Am statements. Who does Jesus say that he is? Because... I hope that you're seeing this week after week. We only need the real 
Jesus. But the real Jesus we really need. Only the real Jesus can solve our deepest problems, meet our deepest needs, calm our deepest fears. Only the real Jesus can bring healing to our lives, to our church, to our city. Only the real Jesus can renew our hearts, and only the real Jesus can stir the hearts of those who have yet to express faith in him in Tupelo. And no substitute will do. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to keep gazing into the heart of the real Jesus and then set our hearts to follow after him and to proclaim him to all that we know. All right, in our passage today, we've come to two more metaphors. So kids that are in the room, as we're walking through this, there are two pictures, two parts of Jesus' story that he picks up on. He says, I'm like that. If you can do nothing else except for write down those two words, what Jesus says that he is, that will be plenty. And adults also, not a bad exercise for you too. You know, if all you get out of this is making sure that you see who Jesus says that he is, that is all we're trying to do this morning. Um, But in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. But John chapter 10 comes after John chapter 9, and it's so easy to miss the context here because it seems that Jesus significantly shifts. You see, in John chapter 9, Jesus has this encounter with a man who has been blind since birth. And and this man man comes to Jesus, and Jesus is interacting with him, and he heals this man of his blindness, and now he can see. And this causes such an uproar among the Pharisees. And you guys know, you know all of those people. You know the people who, there's just this amazing thing that happens, and there's no chance you could respond in any other way except celebration. But you've got that one person in your life who always sees the bad and even the best situation. And it's like somehow they're able to find it. It's like... Yeah, I mean, it's great that the baby was born, but my goodness, your grocery bill's going to increase significantly, right? Like, I mean, it's just, what? Are you kidding me right now? Um, the Pharisees were those guys. They, they could not just simply celebrate the fact that this man who had been blind his whole life now can see. If nothing else, what a gift of grace to this man. No, they're upset because Jesus was the one that did it, and they had particular ideas about Jesus that did not conform to reality. And that's the danger that we all face. We're prone to be like the Pharisees. But in John chapter 9, Jesus heals this man. And the Pharisees, they continue to oppose Jesus. They continue to object to what he's doing. And so they're grilling this once blind man. At the end of John chapter 9, they bring this man back in, and they're like, what's going on? And they grill him over this encounter. I mean, they're, they're blaming the man for, like, regaining his sight and trying to figure out, like, where did the sin come from and all this. They're, they're so upset because of Jesus. Well, this man who was once blind, who now had sight, he ends up turning to the Pharisees and he says regarding Jesus, because the Pharisees are like, we don't know where this man came from. You, you can be a follower of him if you want, but we're going to follow Moses, because we know that Moses came from God, and, and you're following Jesus, we don't know where he came from. And so this, this guy who was once blind, he turns to the Pharisees and he says, if this man, referring to Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. And and then he proceeds to tell them that Jesus is from God, and he's from God because he performed this healing miracle. And as a result, the Pharisees utterly reject this man's faith, and then they cast him out of their presence. This man who had been ostracized his entire life, who had been beaten down his entire life because because he was blind, 
he finally regains his sight. He sees for the first time ever, and he's able to see the Pharisees for what they truly are, religious leaders who are abusing the people that they are supposed to be caring for. And so they take this man because they don't like what he says about Jesus, and they kick him out. They cast him out. And then Jesus, right there in that setting, after that blind man, the, the once blind man is kicked out, he tells a story. Let's look at it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus gives this, this uh, figure of speech, as John calls it. It's, it's just really an illustration. Um, and he is rebuking the religious leaders. He is rebuking what they have just done. And he is essentially encouraging this man who has been rejected by them. You have been cast out by these, these men who are pretending to be shepherds. They are not shepherds. They are thieves and they are robbers. But I, but, but I am the shepherd. And you can follow me. They are strangers. And so you are wanting to follow me because I am the shepherd. Um, now, Jesus uses this story in a way that's a little bit surprising. So what you expect from the story is exactly what I just said. Some, something like, okay, here are the characters at play here. Here's who I'm referring to. It's sort of like an allegory or a parable of Jesus. You know, the thieves and the robbers refer to the Pharisees or the religious leaders or, you know, the shepherd refers to Jesus. And then he explains how everything in the story works and, and plays out, what the metaphor is actually referring to. But he does something a little bit different. He doesn't use it exactly like that. Instead, he uses two primary elements from the illustration to make claims about himself. So that's what we're going to do together today. We're going to look at, we're going to have two points in, in, in the sermon today. We're going to take these two elements in the story, the door and the shepherd, and we're going to see what Jesus says about himself and then what that means for us. We learn two truths about Jesus from Jesus today that will help us have a clear picture of the real Jesus. First is that he is the door that leads to eternal life, and second, he is the good shepherd that calls and cares for his people all right so we could also say that what jesus is doing here is he is making a claim and the claim is i am the exclusive path to eternal life and then through another metaphor he explains how that works but let's take them one by one so first jesus is the door that leads to eternal life all right so in jesus's story the door is merely referenced in some of your translations it may say gate and and it doesn't seem to be the focus of the story at all the shepherd the sheep the thieves the robbers the stranger they, they are the characters that play a prominent role in this short little illustration but then jesus chooses the door as a metaphor for himself he says i am the door so what does he mean let's first of all let's look at it so verse seven jesus said it again to them 
Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What, what does he mean? I am the door. Okay, well, the door, we, don't, we really don't need to overthink this. The door is presented in the story as the only proper and acceptable entrance into the sheepfold. There's only one way in that is acceptable, only one way in that is proper, and it's through the door. So in the story, if someone tried to enter the sheepfold by any other way, Jesus says, but, but by the door, that man was a thief. That man was a robber. That man was a stranger. What need would you have of climbing over the side of the sheep pen when you can just walk through the door? Who would do that? Only someone who is a stranger. Only someone who doesn't know the sheep. Only someone who is is there to cause harm. They're choosing to go through an improper way of entering because they're not familiar. They don't know. But the point is that the door is the only appropriate way of getting into the sheepfold. Okay? On the other hand, the shepherd was known to be the shepherd by his use of the door. So, verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So the door is the only proper, the only acceptable entrance into God's flock or God's people. So when Jesus says, I am the door, he is saying that he is the only entrance into God's flock. He is the only entrance into God's people. It is only through Jesus that we can enter God's kingdom or have eternal life. This is a radical claim that Jesus is making. He, Jesus is saying here, the only way that you can see God is if you come to me. The only way for you to live forever, the only way for you to, to go to heaven, whatever picture is helpful for you, whatever, or uh, the only way to get into the kingdom of God is through Jesus. Not, not, by, not by accepting particular doctrines, not through particular uh, behaviors, through Jesus and Jesus alone. Okay, th- this is actually really controversial, and even though I think most of us probably accept this and believe this to be true, when you sit with it for a minute, it does make you a little uncomfortable. And especially if you've ever been in a conversation with someone who, who is not a Christian. Because for them, in their minds, they have, they have all these options. And they're exploring and they're discovering. And so they, they might be you know, thinking about various uh, forms of religion or spirituality. And so they consider Judaism or Islam or Christianity or, or Hinduism or whatever it is. And so they're thinking about it. Or maybe, it's, you know, maybe the better way to live is just to, to live an agnostic life and not really worry about it too much. And for them, they're like, well, I'm just going to choose what works best for me. And then we come in and we say, well, that's fine. But if you don't pick Jesus, you have no hope of eternal life. Well, that's not nice. There's a common misconception about Jesus, and it's that even though he may lead people to eternal life, he is just one way among many. Because Jesus is a nice guy, right? People have conceptions of Jesus. He's gentle, he's lowly, he says so. Come to me and I will give you rest. He is the good shepherd who cares for and leads his sheep. And so he, he must be pretty open-minded. He, he must be a pretty open guy. I mean, he's not, he's not going to be too judgmental. He's not like the God of the Old Testament. 
and and they think yeah i bet you can get to heaven through jesus but who's to say you can't get to heaven you know in, in another way jesus wouldn't be so so bigoted he wouldn't be so closed-minded um this view holds out a lot of respect for jesus they believe you can get to heaven through faith in him but they also believe that you can get to heaven through faith you know in islam or hinduism or buddhism or take your pick and here's what they say the destination is all that matters not the journey or the path okay so so the way that this helps me is i like to think of when we travel back to kentucky to visit family there are basically three ways we can go if we don't want to be driving you know all night long we could we could go up the up the natchez trace you know and that could be our, our initial our initial journey but i don't want a ticket because i'm going to get a ticket if i drive on the trace for that long it's just you know it's going to be ridiculous and i'll be upset and it's not worth it even though it's it's like oh we've always thought about it. it's so beautiful it's like i know but that ticket will not be beautiful and i will probably get one um we, we usually will we'll hit 45, you know, get up and then hit 40 and then get to Nashville, hit 65 all the way up to Kentucky and over. That's usually the way that we go. One time, though, we, we, uh, there was a storm that was coming through that was significant, like tornadoes were coming. We were like, we need to avoid Nashville. So we actually went through Chattanooga and then we hit 75 and went up that way and that, that took us back home. There are were, there were three valid ways for us to get home. And so really, our cho- the destination is all that matters. As long as we can get you know, back to our hometown to see our family, that's really all we care about. And then the path that we choose just depends on our circumstances, our preferences, whatever we want. And a lot of people think that this is how it works with Jesus. Jesus wants you to come to him, but he's, he's okay if you go through another way. But the problem is when you encounter the real Jesus... He doesn't allow for this view. In his own words, he is the door. He is the only way into God's kingdom. Why? Why, why does that make sense? Is that, is that you know, unreasonable? Is it, is it, you know, bigoted? Is it closed-minded? Is, is there any reason for this at all? Jesus is the only way because only Jesus provides for the conditions that keep us from entering God's flock. He, he meets the conditions that, that are keeping us from eternal life. And only Jesus does this. We cannot and we will not enter God's kingdom because our sin keeps us out. In the Garden of Eden, and, and we used to, in TC Kids, we would run through this all the time. There was, a, there was a great book that we would read, and it's because of your sin, you can't come in. And it's true. Because of our sin, we can't come in the sheepfold. We cannot come in the kingdom of God. We are alienated from God. We are at war with God in our hearts. And we are deserving of God's judgment. And we are actually deserving of what the once blind man received from the Pharisees. Rejection. We, we deserve to be cast out. But our condition is even worse than his. Because we deserve rejection from God. Not just rejection from arrogant men. But what do we read here? Jesus is the door. He himself is the entrance because it is through his person and work that we are reconciled to God. He he bridged this uncrossable gap between us and God. And while there was nothing but stone walls keeping us out of God's kingdom, Jesus himself, through his life, death, and resurrection, became the door, and that door has swung wide open. It's only through Jesus. And, and that's where 
we get down to verse 9, and we find a beautiful promise, a guarantee that Jesus offers. He says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The real Jesus as the door guarantees salvation to anyone who enters by him. What a beautiful promise this is. First of all, anyone. Do you, do you see that language? Will you let that hit you in a fresh way? Anyone. Anyone in your life. There is no one in your life who is not a candidate for the gospel. Okay, anyone. Anyone, no matter their background, no matter their present spiritual state, no matter their intelligence or age or knowledge of God, anyone who enters by Jesus will be saved. And if you have entered by Jesus through faith in him, regardless of your current spiritual state, regardless of how weak you feel, regardless of how far you feel from God, if you have entered by Jesus who is the door, you have a guarantee and a promise that is secure and nothing can touch it. You are saved. You are saved. And one day you will be saved from the very presence, the very thought of sin or sorrow or suffering. Because Jesus is the door. Salvation depends on Jesus. Not on the depth of your knowledge, not on the purity of your behavior or the strength of your faith. If you are going to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus. And if you have faith in Jesus today, even the slightest shred of faith in Jesus, you will be saved. And your future will be marked by freedom and security and nourishment and peace and joy. D.A. Carson, he puts it this way. He says, the life, of Jesus's, or the life that Jesus' true disciples enjoy is not to be construed as just more time to fill. He's reflecting on eternal life, this life that Jesus offers. So it's not, it's not just more time to fill, emphasis on eternal, never-ending life. But Carson says, but it is life at its scarcely imagined best. Life to be lived. There are no other ways in. There is no one else who can provide this for you. Once you encounter the real Jesus, you'll stop looking. Because when you enter by him, you will receive from him life and life abundantly. Jesus is the door, but Jesus is also the good shepherd. He is the door who leads to eternal life, but Jesus is also the good shepherd who calls and cares for his people. Um, there are some misconceptions about Jesus related to his, his involvement with us, too. Okay, so some people believe that while Jesus is God and, and while Jesus came to earth and he did all the things that the Bible says that he did, he, he lived a sinless life, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he did all those things. He remains today a distant deity who simply makes salvation possible. So he came down, you know, he had a, he had a mission, the Lord gave him assignment, he comes to earth, he, he punches the clock, you know, he goes to work, he... He doesn't sin in his life. He, he dies on the cross. He's raised from the dead. He ascends to heaven. Job over. You know, let's see what they do with it. You know, and, and maybe, just maybe, fingers crossed, um, they'll, they'll accept what I did, and then they can, they can be up here in heaven with me. 
and, he's, and Jesus is really hands-off. This Jesus is really hands-off. He doesn't have much to do with your life. You, remain, you, you, know, you retain your, your autonomy. You're in control. You can, you can accept Jesus or reject Jesus, and he's just up there hoping that you, you accept him. Um, that, that's a misconception. That's not the Jesus that we encounter in John chapter 10. There's another misconception that John chapter 10 answers, and it's that Jesus promises us an easy or at least easier life. Here's what we're so prone to do, right? We, we get down to verse 9 of John 10, and we're so pumped up. If we enter by Jesus, we'll be saved. We'll be saved. We'll have eternal life. And then we'll go in and out and find pasture. And then we go to verse 10, and we get all confused. And we say, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Okay, but Jesus is not the thief. He's the door. He is the shepherd. So what does he, what does he do? He, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And man, we get the feels, right? Like when I was talking earlier, even when I was declaring it myself, I got the feels. Whenever we talk about the, the peace and the security and the freedom and the joy and the nourishment that Jesus gives us. And we have endless images of Jesus as a shepherd. We could go to Psalm 23 and how he will lead us by still waters and he will lead us to green pastures. And it just feels so idyllic. And then we wake up from that or we leave church and we think about the week ahead and we're like life is not easy it is painful and it is hard and there's a lot of sorrow and there's a lot of suffering and there's confusion i don't know what i'm supposed to do next and i haven't felt close to god in a really long time and those are real feelings that we have and then there's this crazy disconnect that happens when we read we're supposed to have abundant life but life doesn't feel too abundant right now. What do we do? And if we're not dealing with the real Jesus, that disconnect will break us. If you're expecting Jesus to do something for you that he never promised to do, or if you just don't have a complete understanding of it, it will break you. So let's look at the real Jesus as a shepherd. You see, we don't just need Jesus to be a door opening the way to eternal life. And then he's hands off. We need him to be a shepherd. And we need him to be the good shepherd who takes us there, who leads us there, who is with us through a dark and weary and sorrowful world. In Jesus' story, the shepherd enters by the door, knows his sheep, calls his sheep by name, is known by his sheep, leads his sheep, and goes before his sheep. There are endless allusions in the Old Testament. Two really stand out, and we're not, we're not going to turn to them, but I really want to encourage you, if you have any time today, please go read these passages. Um, in the Old Testament, over and over again, God is referred to as the shepherd of God's people. And also, the Messiah who was, who was promised to come, he was foreseen as the shepherd of God's people, the, the, uh, as, as David was a shepherd. So Psalm 23 is an obvious one. And then Ezekiel 34. Go and read Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34 later today. Jesus now assumes this role. He is the shepherd. I am the shepherd. As God was a shepherd to his people, Israel, so I am a shepherd of you. He is the shepherd who loves and leads his sheep. He is the shepherd who gives rest and security and nourishment and belonging. And there are two roles that we can that we can see here in this passage. And the first is calling. As our shepherd, 
Jesus calls us. In Jesus' day, shepherds were intimately familiar with their sheep. I can't really imagine this because it just, it just seems odd to me. I'm, I'm not really around sheep very much. But they, they would have a, a flock of sheep, and they would either name every single one of them, give, give them a name so that the sheep would know its name and the shepherd would know the sheep and the shepherd would call the sheep and the sheep would come to him, actually know, have a name, or they would have a specific sound or a call that they would have for the sheep. And, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe they're not too different from dogs. I, I really don't know. But that's, that's, that's how it worked in Jesus' day. So he's working off of this reality. And so here's what I want you to notice about how Jesus applies this work of calling to himself in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So Jesus, as the true shepherd, calls his people out of the world. And they come to him because they know his voice. And they know his voice not because they have been waiting for him to come, but because they already, in some mysterious way, belong to him. Jesus is not a hired hand. He owns the flock. And so there is a sense in which we are sheep even before we come into the sheepfold. That there is a mysterious sense in which we belong to Jesus even before we step into it by believing in Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is, he is likely referring to, to the Gentiles here. He's essentially saying, I, I'm calling my sheep from the Jewish people, and they will listen and they will come to me, but I also have sheep that are not of this fold, that are not of the historical people of God, but they belong to me too. And when I call them, they will come. And this is a beautiful answer to, to another common misconception about Jesus. Jesus is not waiting for you to come to him, hoping, fingers crossed, that you respond the right way. He isn't waiting and hoping that you will make the right decision. Jesus is the shepherd, and the shepherd doesn't rely on his sheep to make the right call. The shepherd calls them. Jesus calls his people to himself, and and here's some evangelistic adrenaline for you, okay? All of them come. You pick up on that? All of them. All of those who are the sheep of God, all of them come. So you have confidence when you share the gospel that if there is a person who is going to believe in Jesus, they are going to believe in Jesus because Jesus is calling, not, not just you. When you share the gospel with a friend, you're not the only one calling. Jesus is calling, and his sheep hear his voice, and they will follow him wherever he leads. So as our shepherd, Jesus calls us, but as our shepherd, Jesus also cares for us. And that's a very simple way of saying something very profound here. As the good shepherd, Jesus cares for his sheep in a multitude of ways. In Jesus, we have a shepherd who will feed us, who will lead us. We have a shepherd who will lead us to green pastures and still waters who will remain steadfast and faithful as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
Our shepherd knows us. Our shepherd draws near to us, protects us, and keeps us on course even though we are so prone to stray. And I want you to see here the depth of Jesus' care for you. Jesus knows you. And we know Jesus the same way that God the Father knows Jesus and Jesus knows God the Father. So I want you to look with me at verse 14. Well, we'll back up to verse 13. So after talking about how a hired hand is not going to stand in whenever a wolf comes, he's going to flee. He says he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And now Jesus juxtaposes himself. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. And here's what it's like. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Let that sink in with you for just a second. Jesus knows you the same way that God the Father knows him. And he he actually says it here. It's hard to believe, but Jesus said it, so we got to deal with it. We, in a mysterious way, are connected to Jesus in the same type of way that Jesus is connected to the Father. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. The depth of his care for you, but, but most clearly, okay, most clearly in this passage, because Jesus repeats it. Anytime you see things that are repeated, you need to, you need to mark it because, because it's important. Most clearly, Jesus cares for us by dying for us. And again, outside the context of this passage, it makes total sense. In the context of this passage, it's sort of confusing how a shepherd who dies is actually for the benefit of the sheep that were under his care. It's odd. So, so, so sit with me for a second. Okay, he serves his sheep he provides for his sheep by laying down his life for them. He says it over and over again, but look at verse 11 as one example. I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says it again in verse 15. He says it again in verse 17. He says it again in verse 18. Jesus willingly and sacrificially lays his life down for us. And, and here's his example. Look at verse 12. So after he says that he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You see, shepherds are different from the hired hands. Um, shepherds care for the sheep and they are willing to put their lives at risk to protect the sheep. When the shepherd is there and a wolf comes upon the flock, the shepherd's standing in, and he's going to fight, and he's going he's to ward off the, the enemy, and he's going to protect the sheep at all costs, and he is willing to lose his life in protection of the sheep. Now, a hired hand will not do that. Like the gatekeeper in Jesus' story, the person whose job is just to stand at the gate and wait for the shepherd to come. If a wolf comes, he's 
listen, he's going to jump that fence, he's going to be gone. You know, it ain't nothing to him. The sheep do not belong to him. They're not his. He's not losing anything. If the sheep die, like, he, he, he's not going to lose his life for these animals, okay? Um, but he's a hired hand. He's not the shepherd. Jesus uses this trait of shepherds to emphasize the reason that he came to earth. As the good shepherd, Jesus has come to lay his life down for the sheep. But Jesus is saying more than that he's willing to put his life on the line if danger happens to come. There's intentionality in Jesus' language. Jesus intends to die. The shepherd doesn't intend to die when he's protecting the sheep. He doesn't want to die. He wants to, he wants to kill the wolf and, and remain alive because he needs to remain alive to protect the sheep. But Jesus says... The only way that I can protect the sheep is if I actually die. Sin is here to kill the sheep. And Jesus says, I will stand in their place. I will lay down my life. Now, how does this work, though? How can a dying shepherd save the sheep? The shepherd fights off a wolf and dies in the process, the sheep are not helped or saved. Valiant effort. Anyone who witnessed it would be inspired by the sacrifice. But what's going to happen to the sheep? They're going to die. They're not going to be saved. This is a misconception about Jesus' death. His death means nothing if it's just a heroic act of courage. It's just an inspiring act of love for us to, to follow and embody. No greater love has a man but to lay down his life for his friends. Now let me show you what that looks like. But the, and that's it. That's the end of it. Because we still have enemies that will kill us. Devour us. Sin and death being the primary two. Jesus' death actually rescues us from sin. Jesus' death actually rescues us from death. You know why? Because his death was not the end. John 10, 17. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life. Why? So that I may take it up again. Jesus is not haphazardly risking his life. He is not just saying, I'm going to die to inspire. He's saying, the reason that I am going to lay down my life is because my plan, the goal, the purpose, the whole thing is to take it back up again. That's how he is the good shepherd who can rescue the sheep because he will lay down his life in love and care for his sheep. But it's meaningful because he's going to take his life back up again and lead us into green pastures. Jesus intentionally gave up his life for the purpose of taking it back. Resurrection was always the purpose of the crucifixion. And the empty tomb is evidence that the door of God's kingdom is open through Jesus. And the empty tomb is evidence that Jesus is the good shepherd who actually saves us. So listen, when life is hard, we are tempted to look for answers and alternatives to what we know. Because if life is hard, 
under our current way of thinking and believing and living, then maybe we need to make a change so that life won't be hard. If life has caused you to doubt Jesus, you need to know a couple things. You need to know that, first of all, Jesus is not, he's not a distant deity. He doesn't check out. He is a shepherd, and he is in the muck and the mire and the mud with you. What's important for you to keep in mind is who the real Jesus is. He is the door to eternal life, the only entrance into God's kingdom. Enter by him, and you will have abundant life. But he is also the good shepherd. So when life doesn't feel abundant, when you're in a dark valley, your shepherd is there, and he will never leave. He laid his life down for you, and he took it back up again. And one day, one day, though you will die, you too will be raised to life eternal and life abundant. Let me pray for us.